You want to earn your way to heaven? You want to make it on your own? All you've got to do is meet God's standard. And all he asks is that every moment of your life, you love him perfectly. And every moment of your life, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, Not Even One. Think about the cultural phenomenon of the selfie for just a minute. I think there's not a more vain or self-obsessed social action than taking multiple pictures of yourself to post on social media. Some people will go as far as to doctor their selfies to present a grander image of themselves. This might sound absurd, but what about you? What type of image do you present regarding the state of your soul? Do you present a heavily doctored spiritual selfie, so to speak? Or will you allow the scriptures to strip away the facade of self and reveal the inner condition of your soul? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now here on The Word Unleashed. In his letter to the Romans, just to remind you, Paul has already indicted both the Jews and the Gentiles of personal guilt before God. In chapter 1, the pagan Gentiles, chapter 2 and half of chapter 3, the Jews and all of those who claim to worship the true God. But beginning with chapter 3, verse 9, Paul steps back from specific people groups and he provides us with a sweeping summary of mankind's universal and total depravity. He paints what is a disturbing portrait. It is a portrait of God's view of every man and woman. His goal is to show man's universal lack of personal righteousness and his desperate need for the gospel that Paul preached. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This passage is one of the most important texts in the entire Bible. It both describes and it proves from the Scripture the moral corruption that theologians call total depravity. We learn from this passage, as I noted last week, 
that depravity is, first of all, universal. That is, that it affects the entire human race. And we learned that depravity is total. And by that, we don't mean every person is as bad as they could be. We mean that depravity affects every part of every person, every faculty of body and soul. It's total. Now, as we began to study this paragraph last time, we considered in verse 9 the formal indictment of man's depravity. The formal indictment of man's depravity. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Now, as I, as I argued with you last time, we here could refer to the Jews. Are we Jews better than they? That is a possibility. But I think it's better for the several reasons I shared with you last time, and I won't go through them again, but I think it's better to take this as Paul saying, are we Christians inherently, by nature, better than all the people I've indicted so far, all the pagan Gentiles and all the unbelieving Jews? And he says, not at all. Absolutely not. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here is Paul's summary of everything he's taught the Romans so far. He says, I have made a formal indictment in what I've written so far that all humanity is legally guilty. Guilty of what? Look at verse 9. We have already charged that both are all under sin. That is his indictment. All humanity is under sin. What does that mean? Well, we spent quite some time last time looking in context in Paul's letter to the Romans to see what he meant. And it means several things. First of all, it means that men and women are in the realm of sin. We either dwell in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We either are under sin and under law or we are under grace. And all of humanity lives in the realm that is characterized by sin. We noted that to be under sin meant to be under the practice of sin. That is, we practice sin. We commit sin regularly. And Paul is very clear about that. He is in this text that we're looking at this morning. It means to be under the power of sin. Paul uses two personifications of sin in Romans. One of of sin as as a ruthless despot who reigns in our lives, and the other as a a ruthless, abusive slave master, and we its slaves. We're under the power of sin. To be under sin also means to be under the guilt of sin, not the feeling of guilt, although that's true, but rather real legal guilt, the kind of guilt in the courtroom, and then under the penalty of sin. That is, we're merely awaiting the execution of the sentence that God has already pronounced. That's what it means to be under sin. And Paul says, all humanity is under sin. Now today, we come to the second part of this paragraph, and what is the heart of Paul's argument? And it is the biblical evidence for man's depravity. The biblical evidence. Notice how he begins verse 10, as it is written. Paul here introduces the biblical proof for the indictment that he has just made, that all men are under sin. Just one quick note about that expression. The Greek verb is actually in the perfect tense. It could be translated this way, just as it has been written. 
That's the language the authors of the New Testament love to use when they're quoting the Old Testament. And it punctuates the fact that the Scripture was written before, in the past, but unlike merely human readings, or human writings, I should say, it continues to have authority and relevance and permanence. It has been written. Now, following that introduction, you'll notice that Paul, in typical Jewish fashion, strings together a series of related Old Testament passages as proof that all men are under sin. Let me just say as an aside, by the way, that while we believe strongly, as you know, in expositional preaching, that's what we do here primarily, this paragraph reminds us that it is legitimate to pull a series of passages together in order to make a theological point if we are true to the original meaning in the original context. That's what Paul does here. Now, you'll notice in our English text, the following verses are all capitalized. You see that? Most of our versions do that, and they do that to show us that the New Testament author is now quoting from the Old Testament. What that means is that verses 10 through 18 consist entirely of Old Testament quotes. It's pretty remarkable because nowhere else in his writings does Paul include such a lengthy quotation from the Old Testament, nor does he draw on so many different Old Testament passages. Paul here wants to underscore in a big way that this idea of universal and total lack of righteousness is not some new idea that he's come up with. It's not novel. It's exactly what the Hebrew Scriptures teach. Now, you'll notice that there are quotes from seven different Old Testament passages in this paragraph. If you have a Bible that has marginal references Uh, notes in the margin, you'll notice where they're from. In verses 10 and 11, he pulls from Psalm 14 or possibly Psalm 53. They're parallel passages. Uh, In verse 13, he pulls from Psalm 5, Psalm 140. In verse 14, from Psalm 10. In verses 15 to 17, from Isaiah, Isaiah 59. And then in verse 18, from Psalm 36. So a number of places in the Old Testament scriptures in their context, in the Old Testament, some of these passages are directed at pagan Gentiles and others of them are directed at unbelieving Jews. This is brilliant on the Apostle Paul's part because what he does by weaving together that collection of passages, he underscores that both Jews and Gentiles are all sinful, that this is a description of universal depravity and total depravity from the scripture of all unbelievers. He paints here a portrait. This is what I want you to see. He paints a portrait here of every sinner. In other words, these verses not only describe God's view of the terrorists of ISIS, but the citizens of Southlake. This is how God views you. This is how God views me apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. Now, the string of Old Testament references here are not simply put together in a random way. Paul instead weaves them together with great precision, with great artistry. Let me show you how he develops his thought, and I'll give you an overview, and then we'll come back and and take it apart and look at it. 
In verse 10, he begins with a, with a summary statement of depravity. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then beginning in verse 11, down through verse 17, he shows us the depth to which depravity goes. It impacts us in every aspect of our being. Our minds, our wills, our lifestyles, our behavior, our speech, our relationships. And then having shown the depth of depravity in verse 18, he identifies the foundation of depravity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So let's consider then first, back in verse 10, a summary of depravity. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. This is a sweeping indictment all humanity. But what does it mean, there is none righteous? The, the Greek word translated righteous here, as well as its Hebrew counterpart, simply means to conform to a standard. To conform to a standard. You can see this in some of the texts in the Old Testament where it's used in a non-theological setting. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36, God says this, you shall have righteous balances and righteous weights. What does that mean? Well, you understand that the culture then was an agricultural society, an agrarian society in which grains and other produce were sold. Well, obviously there had to be some standard and some way to measure out how much was sold. And so you had a set of scales that balanced. On one side of the scale, you would put the different increments of weight, depending on how much the customer wanted. For simplicity's sake, let's say one pound, five pounds, ten pounds. The customer says, I want ten pounds of grain. You would put your ten-pound weight on one side of the scale, and then you would put grain on the other side of the scale until it balanced. But you can imagine that the system was open to a lot of dishonesty, and unscrupulous men would take those weights that were supposed to be standard weights, and they would, eat, they would have a set that had some shaved off of them, and then have a set that had some added to them, depending on whether they were buying or selling, so that they could be in the most advantageous place, essentially cheating. And God says, if you're going to be my people, you're not going to act that way in your business. You're going to use righteous weights and righteous balances. What does that mean? It means ones that conform to the standard. There's a standard for how much 10 pounds is. Make sure your measurements conform to the standard. They're righteous. Now, you can see then when this word righteous is used in theological settings, it still means to meet the standard. But in theological settings, it means to meet God's standard, the standard laid out in his law. It is to live in perfect conformity to the law of God. There are several passages I could take you to, but in the interest of time, let me take you to the one that I think is the clearest for our purposes. Turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And notice verse 20. Solomon writes, Indeed, this is Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth. Well, what does it mean to be righteous, Solomon? who continually does good and who never sins. 
There's the ultimate standard of righteousness. You want to meet God's standard? You want to be acceptable to God based on your own efforts? There's the standard. You must be a righteous person. And to be righteous in this sense means to continually do good and never sin. In other words, to be righteous is to conform perfectly to God's standard. Now, what is God's standard? Well, it's his word, obviously, but again, to simplify it, our Lord summarizes God's perfect standard this way in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the standard. So, here it is. You want to earn your way to heaven? You want to make it on your own? All you've got to do is meet God's standard. And all he asks is that every moment of your life, you love him perfectly And every moment of your life, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. That's righteous. Now, go back to Romans 3, and let's see what Paul says. Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none who meets the standard. There is none righteous, not even one. There's not one who continually does what is good and who does not sin. Apart from justifying grace, not one person who has ever lived has met God's standard. Not one of us stands as right before God. The only exception, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. But for the rest of humanity, no one possesses a righteousness that meets the demands of God's holy law. This is the testimony of the rest of Scripture. There is none righteous in this sense. 1 Kings 8, 46, Solomon says, There is no man who does not sin. Even our best is sinful to God. You ever thought about that? We think about our sin and we think, oh boy, it's going to be bad. If, if I'm on my own at the judgment, my sin is going to condemn me. Your most righteous acts will condemn you at the judgment. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The very best thing you've ever done, apart from Christ, apart from his intervening grace, will get you judgment at the day of judgment. Here's how our Lord put it in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. No one is good except God alone. No one is good, Jesus says, except God alone. You know what this means? The standard, righteous, it's a standard we can't hit. If we are measured against the plumb line of God's law, we are all found to be crooked. It's a target we can't hit. It's a canyon we can never jump. It's an ocean we can never swim. The standard is perfection, perfect love for God, perfect love for others, every moment of our lives, and we don't meet it. How can we summarize our sinful condition? There is none righteous, not even one. Now, having summarized our condition, Paul proceeds then to outline in verses 11 to 17 the depth of our depravity. He explains just how profoundly sin has affected every area of our lives. I enjoy fountain pens. And 
I get some degree of ridicule from different people for that, but I do enjoy them. And when you clean a fountain pen, if you accidentally drop one drop of ink in an otherwise clear glass of water, what happens? It permeates every centimeter of that water. That's how it is with sin. Sin has permeated every part of our being. It has spread everywhere. That's what Paul wants us to see. First of all, our depravity consists in darkened minds. Look at verse 11. There is none who understands. Let me give you the context from Psalm 14. In Psalm 14 two, the psalmist writes this, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. So you get the picture, God's in heaven, he's looking down across the planet, the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And the obvious implication in the, in the context is he didn't find a single one. Not one person on the planet who understands. What does that mean? Well, obviously the word means to have an intelligent grasp of something, but, but what is he talking about here? Well, first of all, you need to note that this is not a momentary lapse of understanding. It's not I momentarily forgot something. Rather, it is a defining, permanent characteristic. In fact, the language has the idea... It's not that I don't understand, it's that we are all people who lack understanding. It's a characteristic of us. Fallen man simply lacks all spiritual understanding. Now, make sure you're clear on what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that unbelievers can't understand the facts of Christianity, or they can't understand the Bible in in the way they would understand other literature. I have commentaries on my shelf written by liberals who reject the truth of Scripture, who can explain the language and the context fairly well, in a helpful way. But they don't believe it, and they don't entrust their lives to it. In that sense, they are unable to understand. They just don't get its truthfulness and its implications in their life. So, what do sinners, apart from grace, not understand? Let me give you several things, just quickly. First of all, they don't understand all spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man, that is a man who is an unregenerate person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the Scripture, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, this is ability, this is capacity, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Again, not the facts but the truthfulness of them. He doesn't understand them in a life-changing way. He doesn't embrace the implications. Also, unbelievers don't understand the truth about God. Romans 1, remember, they should have. They knew certain things about God from what was displayed all around them, but instead they worship rocks and sticks and ideas. They immerse themselves in idolatry and false religion. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series titled Not Even One. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then.
Well, Tom, you closed today stating that all fallen humanity lacks spiritual understanding. Does that mean it's impossible for people to understand what the Scripture is saying apart from the Holy Spirit? You know, Bill, that's a great question, and it's a question that I'm hoping to answer fully in tomorrow's program. But but I just want us to think about it in the big picture. The answer to your question is yes. All humanity in its fallen state lacks spiritual understanding, and it is impossible for people to truly, in a spiritual, life-changing way, understand what the Scripture is saying apart from God. I mean, they can grasp the basic concepts, the ideas. Unbelievers write commentaries on the Scripture, but they can't grasp it in the way that it's intended, the way that changes you at a profound spiritual level, changes your thinking, changes your life. For that, we are totally dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. So we'll look at that more tomorrow, but it's it just reminds us of how reliant we are as human beings on the grace of our God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.